Blog Talk Radio. This is the Lex Villa Radio Program for Thursday, July 18, 2013. Today's show, I am live at the uh, undisclosed location. Not really. Uh, but I'll be talking about my webinar tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time with my friends at primarycareprogress.org. In addition, uh, there was an interesting webinar yesterday putting family medicine against nurse practitioners on a panel. Yes, that happened again. I'll be talking about that. And finally, my airline flight last night. Some interesting thoughts. All that coming up on episode 309 of the Mexivilla radio program, Welcome to the show that is passionate about friends, family, medicine, and social media. This is the Mike Savella Radio Program. I have no idea if anybody's listening right now or can hear me because the uh, internet and the bandwidth here is just awful. <laughs> so maybe I'm just feeling like, you know, sounding like a uh, muffled guy. I have no idea. But I am your host. My name is Dr. Mike Savilla, the one-man social media wrecking machine for seven years running. And uh, check out the new uh, website at drmikesavilla.com. And uh, what is this show about? Uh, I tell people this is a show, this is a commentary and discussion about medicine, social media, leadership, and life, and a lot of other different things. Today is Thursday, July 18, 2013. It is 9 p.m. Eastern daylight time and already here at nine o'clock eastern time it is already 84 degrees fahrenheit on its way to the mid 90s yes i am here in boston massachusetts i'll be telling you why coming up in just a little bit and tomorrow here in the boston area it's rumored see the forecast here it's going to get close to or reach 100 degrees here, and I will still be here tomorrow, so that'll be very interesting there. How has uh, your week uh, been going out there, kids? Uh, Just been, uh, you know, as usual, crazy busy trying to keep up with life, trying to keep up with the job, trying to keep up with all of you out there since I'm back on uh, (laughs) Twitter and Facebook. Uh, You people talk about a lot of stuff out there. I'm not uh, not lying. (laughs) It's it's, it's hard to... (laughs) keep up with with all of you out there but it's it's, it's great being uh, online again and uh, you know w- when i go out of town uh it, it is uh, interesting seeing what the uh, what the local news uh here is uh sometimes and um uh when i got in last night and and looking at the at uh, the news this morning the news uh, here in boston uh this morning is is reaching uh, is, is is national news and, and you may have uh, you may have heard of this story already. I think it's just interesting, just trying to uh, just 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 uh, just uh, 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 just show you what's going on and and, and what's happening uh, locally here. I'll, I'll play a couple of news reports. You probably heard of this in the news this morning, if not already. But this is what they're talking about here um, on all the local news stations here in Boston. And now a big argument underway tonight, an iconic magazine under fire, retailers pulling Rolling Stone from the shelves, saying it's one thing to seek out controversial covers, but should they draw a line on accused terrorists? ABC's Dan Harris takes us into the debate. This Rolling Stone cover featuring Jahar Sarnaev with his doe eyes and fashionably unruly mane is being greeted in Boston tonight with a hot blast of anger. Why the heck you gonna put an alleged 
Obama, and then all of a sudden try to play him like he's a rock star. By putting this guy on the cover, we're giving him what he wants, and what he wants is fame. This is rock's most coveted cover. It's a thrill that'll get you when you get your picture on the cover of the Rolling Stone. Memorialized in the famous song by the band Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show, an honor normally reserved for people famous enough to go by just one name, Elvis, Madonna, Bono, John and Yoko. On the cover of the Rolling Stone. And now, a 19-year-old alleged terrorist. The young man seen in this chilling picture, looming near 8-year-old Martin Richard, who lost his life, and the Norden brothers, who each lost a leg. Why are we going to publicize a, a, a guy who destroyed people's lives? It make any sense to me. That anger echoed by friends of MIT police officer Sean Collier, allegedly murdered by the brothers Sarnayev. I was appalled. I was appalled to see that they would treat him as a celebrity, as a star. Tonight, Rolling Stone is defending its cover, saying the fact that Jahar Sarnayev is young and in the same age group as our readers makes it all the more important for us to examine the complexities of this issue. The article itself is a rather sober affair, exploring how Jahar turned into a, quote, monster. But you won't be able to buy it in CVS or Walgreens, which just today said they won't sell it. As the mayor of Boston said in a letter to the magazine today, the survivors of the Boston attacks deserve Rolling Stone covers, though I no longer feel that Rolling Stone deserves them. Dan Harris, ABC News, New York. So in the, in the, uh, the uh, <clears throat> discussion on local news is that there's more <clears throat> stores, especially here in the Boston area, that are not going to be selling uh, that uh, issue of uh, Rolling Stone. So it's just interesting seeing what, what's going on locally here and how that how that expands out to the uh, to the uh, national news. Uh, but uh, enough about that. Uh, I'm going to be talking about why I'm here uh, in Boston uh, just uh, coming up. But first, I do want to thank Block Talk Radio for having me be a featured host on this uh, network. Um, I've been a social media hobbyist since 2005. And if you're curious, yes, I am a real doctor. I am a uh, family physician in full-time private practice uh, in uh, beautiful northeastern Ohio. Uh, so I will uh, I will take my break, and uh, after the break, I will be uh, uh, talking about our friends here at uh, primarycareprogress.org here in the uh, Boston area, and uh, I'll be talking about the huge, the huge, uh, the soon-to-be-very-successful uh, webinar that's going on. Uh, here uh, tonight. So you're listening to the Mike Savella radio program here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, a proud member of the uh, ProMed Network, a podcast you can get there by going to promednetwork.com, and I will be right back. Right, back better than ever. This is the Mike Sevilla Radio Program, and you can uh, check me out at drmikesevilla.com. And uh, so let's uh, let's get into this. So I'm here in Boston, in the Boston area, <clears throat> uh, tonight, uh, Thursday, July 18, 2013, at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Um, the uh, the good folks over at primarycareprogress.org um, are going to be interviewing me. Uh, why? I have no idea. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, they, uh, they're great folks over there, and if you haven't checked out their website, go ahead and, and do that um, because they're doing some great work um, over there, uh, talking about primary care, talking about um, you know the need for it, why is it important for the United States, why is it important for our country, uh, and I really believe in, in, in what they're doing, and uh, I am proud to, uh, to uh, be working with them um, on this project and uh, hopefully some, some future projects as well to, to help uh, spread the message about 
uh, primary care, especially using uh, social media. Uh, so, so for people who who aren't familiar with primary care progress, I'm going to be reading just some stuff from their website. Uh, and because if you're not familiar with their story, it's a pretty powerful story. And they, you know, they, they've you know they haven't been around that long, and they've already gained a lot of momentum, um, especially in the the primary care community for their work in in advocacy. And uh, and they have a nationwide network um, of people uh, who are who share these similar values, uh, who uh, love primary care as much as they do. And, and, and what this organization is trying to do is just, just bring these people together in one voice um, and to, to bring that message to, uh, to people uh, everywhere, but especially in the, uh, the, uh, the health policy community, in the halls of, of uh, local uh, state and federal legislators, uh, to uh, to people that pay for health care, uh, payers, employers. Um, uh, Primary Care Progress was, uh, and I'm reading from their website, was born in the, in the context of a 2009 announcement at Harvard Medical School that the school's primary care division was going to be defunded, uh, basically meaning that the voice, the voice of primary care, on the medical on that medical school campus was going to be silenced, and and people just didn't want to do that. Uh, the move immediately sparked a grassroots campaign to convene the entire primary care community to work with the medical school uh, around a new vision for primary care training. And uh, it goes on to say, the spirit of collaboration mobilized by a group of students, residents, and faculty led to the new Center for Primary Care at Harvard, as well as the formation uh, of primary care progress. And at the center of this... <clears throat> Uh, is somebody who, who uh, I've really gotten to know, Dr. Andrew Morrisinger, who's really out front uh, on this back then and uh, is, is the president, founder, principal, member, uh, I forget what all of his titles are. <laughs> he has a lot of them uh, for uh, primary care progress. And uh, and I saw this, uh, I saw this uh, talk and I saw this speech on YouTube uh, when I started getting to know about primary care progress. And I'm going to share just a little bit of a piece here with you. It's only 90 seconds. This is kind of a highlight from, from his speech all the way from 2000. I think I believe it was from 2011, 2010, 2011. Uh, but you can kind of hear the, the energy. You can hear the conviction. You can hear the passion that, uh, that he has for, for medicine, for primary care. Um, and this is at the opening of the, uh, the uh, primary care uh, center um, at the uh, Harvard campus. Here we go. Uh, it's an absolute honor to be here tonight talking with you in the context of the announcement of this new center. As someone who has worked as a community organizer for the past decade, I promise you this community couldn't have been asked for better partners, for better leaders, and greater commitment to get this right. We worked together to sponsor and organize a series of two town halls that many of you were at to ensure that all perspectives would be heard that all who wanted to could participate in this critical dialogue. These events had unprecedented turnout from all across the Harvard primary care community. We demonstrated to both ourselves and others the incredible potential, passion, and creativity that exists in us as individuals and as a community. Now this new center is remarkable, both in its timeliness and its potential to truly transform local, national, and international systems of primary health care delivery and training. However, we must all know that one of the key ingredients to success will be community and continued collaboration. Our group, Primary Care Progress, is also building connections with other trainees, innovators, and educators in other communities across the country. We have so much to learn from one another in our respective local efforts to promote primary care, transform care delivery, and training. So let's go forward together with a clear understanding that it's up to us and the work we continue to do together as a community to ensure that this center lives up to its truly transformative potential. Thank you very much. So so what they do really well, and and, uh, uh, as I've gotten to know the organization, what they do really well is that they they bring people together. Uh, They bring people together in the same room (laughs) uh, to to talk about issues, to, to generate solutions, to generate kind of next steps. It's not all about complaining. It's trying to find uh, solutions uh, 
because we all know what the problems are <laughs> with our healthcare system. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to figure that out. But the, the harder step, the more difficult step, is to come up with solutions, solutions that are realistic, solutions that are innovative, solutions that are <clears throat> outside the box or whatever kind of cliche that you want to use. And that's what this group is doing, not just here in the Boston area, but but across the country. Um, uh, and they're very involved with, with social media as well, on uh, Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. Um, I encourage you to uh, to check out their YouTube page. Uh, they have uh, very good uh, videos over there about what they do and some of the events that they had. They're, they're having a leadership conference here in the Boston area uh, next month, and uh, you can get more information at the primarycareprogress.org. I may be attending that as well just to kind of meet people and uh, and kind of see see what's happening here. Um, on their YouTube channel, they they uh, <clears throat> have a little bit of a background of what of what they are and 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 what they do. Um, I know audio does not completely. <laughs> capture it all uh, because they have it's a great video that they put through that they put together but uh, I will play the audio part here this is this is from their primary care progress YouTube website about what they're at. 50 years ago if you said you were a doctor there was a one in two chance that you're a family doctor or some other type of primary care clinician today the chances are about one in four the future of primary care is only getting bleaker a recent study found that as few as 5% of medical students are pursuing training in family medicine. Even fewer, 2%, are pursuing training in general internal medicine. We've got a big problem brewing in this country right now. A shortage of primary care providers. And it's not hard to understand why. Clinicians are feeling overwhelmed by unprecedented demand and little support. Trainees are feeling uninspired and frankly discouraged and patients are feeling underserved. In the next few years, millions of new patients will enter our healthcare system, all looking for a primary care provider. But will they find one? And how long will they have to wait for that first appointment? Is our primary care system going to be able to meet this new demand? Primary care is the front line of a healthcare system. And without an ironclad front line, our health system is at risk. But we can make sure that doesn't happen on our watch. Primary Care Progress is a group of clinicians, trainees, and primary care supporters who believe that we can fix primary care from within. We know the primary care community is among the most passionate, creative, and innovative in medicine. Primary Care Progress wants to harness that energy to build new collaborations, to improve provider training and care delivery. Our mission starts with the local primary care community, trainees, clinicians, and the public, with particular emphasis on this next generation of primary care providers. Our goal is to build a primary care network that will educate, energize, and inspire. One clinic, one school, one person at a time. To revitalize primary care, we've got to come together as a community. This is our moment. So tonight, tonight, uh, I'm, I'm very excited uh, to be working with uh, Primary Care Progress um, at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, uh, Thursday, July 18, 2013. Uh, the, the title of the webinar is, <laughs> is pretty simple, uh, an interview with Dr. Mike Savella, physician and social media promoter here uh, that they put together to join us for a discussion with me and social media specialist uh, Jeanette Restivo, uh, PCP's Director of Media and Communications, and we'll talk about uh, my perspective as a, a social media uh, physician um, over the past uh, seven years, and uh, I will offer opinion on how clinicians and uh, clinicians and training can best use social media uh, and some of the challenges and rewards of the medium. Now, if you're listening to my voice right now, <clears throat> uh, go to the uh, Primary Care Progress uh, website <laughs> and go and register. Go to their Facebook page, and uh, they have a, uh, a nice little area there, uh, 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 an update, uh, where you can leave me a question. Uh, there's already a few questions there. 
as well. Uh, so it's going to be it's going to be fun. I'm going to be uh, hanging out with them uh, most of the uh, afternoon uh, if I can find my way uh, to the uh, uh, to Primary Care Progress uh, World Headquarters. Uh, here in the uh, here in the Boston area, uh, so it's going to be fun. I, I'm going to be talking, sharing a little bit about my story. Uh, I'm going to share a little bit about uh, some of my uh, opinions on the perspective on the landscape of what uh, healthcare social media is right now, what I think the future is, what my future is. Uh, so it's going to be a fun. It's going to be a fun conversation, um, and uh, I encourage you to register. I mean, it's free, uh, and uh, just go to primarycareprogress.org. Uh, in, in my selfish, in my selfish little mind, there, kids, <laughs> hoping for a really good uh, registration, uh, really good participation, record numbers of people, you know, because you all love me, I know. Uh, so, uh, uh, so unless you're driving, uh, uh, <laughs> listening to me, drop what you're doing right now. <laughs> Go to primarycareproperties.org and uh, register for tonight's uh, uh, webinar at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Now, it, it, even if you can't listen live, uh, go, go ahead and register anyway because uh, you, you'll be able to get access to the, uh, uh, to the recorded webinar. So register, and then you'll be able to get information later. So, and so I'm very excited about that, very excited to be uh, to be meeting the team over at uh, Primary Care Progress uh, later today, and to, and to get to know them, and to ex- exchange ideas, and come up with solutions, and uh, it's going to be it's going to be a good time. So I will uh, take uh, another break here. After the break here, I'm going to be uh, uh, talking about uh, an interesting webinar that happened uh, yesterday uh, that I saw parts of, uh, and uh, it's again it's, it's it's talking about scope of practice. Uh, that's kind of a buzzword. Uh, kind of a euphemism, not really a euphemism, but uh, a, uh, a buzzword for uh, family medicine, family docs uh, versus uh, nurse practitioners, independent practice nurse practitioners, and I've talked about that on this show before, and uh, I'll be playing a couple of uh, audio clips uh, from that webinar uh, coming up on the Mike Sabella radio program. We will be right back here live from Boston here on the Block Talk Radio Network. We'll be right back. program live from Boston here on the Block Talk Radio Network on a Thursday morning. So yesterday, uh, the Alliance for Health Reform, and on their website they say Nonpartisan Alliance for Health Reform, along with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, sponsored an event, a webinar event, a panel discussion uh, entitled The doctor slash nurse slash other. And it also says rethinking scope of practice Wednesday, July 17, uh, 2013. Uh, And it is on the Alliance for Health Reform uh, website. And they have three panelists there. Uh, One uh, was uh, a physician, but I, I believe also an economist. Uh, to give the scope of what's going on at the state level with regards to policy about uh, what uh, nurse practitioners are allowed to do in different states. Uh, There was also a uh, nurse, uh, the executive director of the American Association of College and Nursing, uh, and also a good friend, uh, Dr. Reed Blackwater, the president-elect of the American Academy of Family Physicians. And and these type of panels and discussions have been happening over the past few months. I've talked about them on this uh, program in the past. 
Uh, and it was an interesting uh, discussion. Uh, first of all, I mean, before getting into the content, kind of the whole setup, and that, that, that is something that fascinates me, is how they set up these discussions. So this, this was a webinar, um, and it was, you know, three people, or four people, there was a moderator, it was four people um, sitting, looks like fairly close to each other. It looks like it was in a small room. Uh, there was one camera shot, uh, and um, and it looked like it looked like they were in a small room. It looked like they were uncomfortable in there. <laughs> it looked like they were squeezed into a small room, and uh, uh, they're making their points. Uh, and and it, it seemed pretty contentious. It seemed pretty stressful in there. Trying to, I don't know if it was just. You know the setup and the size of the room, and because I've seen these, these type of excuse me, I've seen these type of discussions before, uh, and it didn't seem very tense. So I don't know if it was the whole setup of the whole thing. Again. Uh, so you know, it, it was interesting seeing the the back and forth there. Um, it, it's your, your you know everybody was nailing their talking points and saying what they were, you know, what their constituency you know wants them to say and being advocates for their groups. Uh, and, and I'll play the first piece here. This is this is from the executive director of the American Association of College of Nurses, and I will play this, and then I will have a little bit of reaction here to it after I find it on my soundboard here. So this is uh, a one part of yesterday's uh, webinar talking about scope of practice. I'm Holly Bednash, the CEO of the American Association of Colleges of Nursing, and we represent senior colleges and universities in this country that grant baccalaureate and graduate degree nursing degrees. And we represent 98% of the institutions who educate advanced practice registered nurses, otherwise known as APRNs. There are four titles for APRNs, nurse practitioners, nurse anesthetists, nurse midwives, and clinical nurse specialists. And as a foundational uh, element of this conversation, I want to tell you that all of these individuals have at least an undergraduate degree in nursing of four years in length plus three to four years of graduate education in nursing as part of their training. Um, this scope of practice issue isn't recent. It's been going on for a long time, ever since nurse practitioners have existed. And I'd like to talk today about the factual basis of the scope of practice limitations and its impact on healthcare providers. One of the first studies that was done was done by the Office of Technology Assessment, an entity that did studies for Congress, which is no more in place, it does not exist anymore. But that study looked at the existing research on NPEPA and midwifery outcomes of practice and said that these clinicians could deliver 50 to 90% of primary care in a very high quality manner. So it wasn't the first or the last of these different kinds of studies about the outcomes of care by nurse practitioners and other providers. Barbara Seyfried, who was then the Associate Dean of Law at Yale University, reported in the Journal on Regulation, that the removal of non-evidence-based limitations on scope of practice could dramatically improve access to care and maintain quality. In the year 2000, Mary Mundinger and her colleagues at Columbia University did a study looking at the outcomes of care delivered by nurse practitioners and physicians when those individuals had the same primary care population to follow, the same patient care responsibilities, the same requirements for productivity, and found that the outcomes were comparable. And then in 2011, Robin Newhouse and her colleagues did a systematic review of research from 1990 to 2008 and found that the outcomes, again, of care delivered by these individuals was high quality and, in fact, was safe. Well, this actually has created this growing consensus among policymakers that Kavita alluded to. This concern about who's going to deliver care has caused a number of people to come into this conversation. The National Governors Association has released a paper recommending that these scope of practice limitations be removed so that they are able to deliver care to the people in their states. The Institute of Medicine report, which recommended removal of the scope of practice limitations, was driven by the evidence, the clear evidence that exists. And the Federal Trade Commission has issued 11 state uh, documents about what's happening in the states recommending that the scope of practice limitations are really antitrust behaviors 
and that in order to be competitive that these states should remove these barriers and that the care delivered by nurse practitioners and advanced practice clinicians and TAs is high quality and that can improve access to care. So we've had over 50 years of consistent revisiting of this issue of the same policy questions over and over despite the continued growth of evidence regarding the quality safety and the satisfaction of patients with the level of care provided by these clinicians. And, and, and unfortunately, the opponents to loosening the scope of practice barriers continue to assert that the evidence is lacking. What's sad is that the opposition tends to be organizational rather than individual or local because when you see these clinicians working together at the local level, they have very close collaborative relationships that have respect for the each contributions to the care um, care spectrum. I will say that similar evidence does not exist for the quality of care delivered by other providers. No other provider has been studied as much or delivered as much evidence about quality of care. So the microscopic assessment of nursing has revealed data and evidence that are routinely ignored. So the reality is, as you were saying, Kavita, that the care demands in this country are going to require an approach that has everyone in giving health care to the people who will be seeking that health care. Instead of trying to place barriers in front of qualified providers, we should actually be joining together and focus on having an agenda to get adequate financing for primary care, to assure that primary care services can be delivered to all of the individuals who demand that care and that all of the providers who are capable of providing care can be engaged in a meaningful way. Now, we agree that team-based care is an effective means of assuring that all the knowledge available on a health care issue can be brought to the patient. Health care delivered by a team means that you're going to bring in multiple providers. You're going to have a pharmacist, a social worker, a physical therapist, a nurse, a physician, all working together on a team to deliver that care. And being on a team, however, does not mean being directed by others or seeking permission from others to behave in the way you've been educated to behave. It means instead sharing best practices for the patient and bringing the array of expertise available to the patient experience. One of the hottest issues that emerges in this conversation is the ind independent practice issue. It comes up all the time. It brings to mind the uh, image of a nurse practitioner hanging out a shingle, sitting by his or herself somewhere without any opportunity to interact with others. In fact, very, very, very few APRNs are in what's called independent practice. And the reality is that no clinician is really in independent practice, or at least we hope not. We hope that they're all working with other providers, collaborating with that array of clinicians and professionals who can help us deliver the best care. When we talk about independence, what we mean is independence is defined as having the authority to use fully the knowledge and training that you have acquired through your studies without having to get permission from physicians or others to use that knowledge and training. Uh, so that was about six and a half minutes. I mean, uh, what did that much? Because I mean, you know, the, the the person was reading. You know, I mean, it, it it would seem like it was just kind of, you know, reading some talking points. Um, and, and you know, Dr. Blackwell is a little bit similar deal, too. But, I mean, it's just, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, a lot of this, you know, six-and-a-half-minute speech is, is, is talking about how, you know, nurse practitioners are good people and they have, you know, good training and, and they should be allowed they should be allowed to do more. Uh, the, you know, the, the real hot button issue is is the independent practice nurse practitioner. And, and the, in the last, I think, 30 to 60 seconds, the speaker kind of addresses that and said, "Oh, it's it's not really about you know a nurse practitioner hanging up uh, a shingle, uh, but it is about nurse practitioners not wanting to uh, ask permission." to do what they've been trained to do. Uh, and that's interesting to me because, you know, me as a physician, it doesn't even matter, I'm a primary care physician, a family physician, uh, I have to ask permission all the time. <laughs> I order something or whatever, and then, you know, people like our friends at the insurance company and say, hey, uh, you have to pre-authorize this. <laughs> 
you have to fill out this paperwork to get your patient this test or this medication uh, uh, because we think it's too expensive or we think. So, uh, so, so that argument really doesn't kind of, you know, really show kind of validity to me because it, at times me and there's a lot of my physician colleagues across the board who are asking permission to do that. So I, I don't really see that. And it's interesting how this how this person kind of opens up by saying, how, you know, what the training is and how how comprehensive it is. And 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 what Dr. Blackboulder will say in his remarks is that he will come back and say, well, you know, it's not enough training or it's not standardized training. Uh, so it's interesting kind of seeing these speakers go back and forth. I've heard these points recycled again and again and again, and I think, you know, I don't know if the public is, is really kind of paying attention to this or it's just kind of a lot of infighting. Uh, so so here's Dr. Blackwalder's remarks uh, from yesterday's webinar talking about scope of practice. Now, I agree the discussion needs to change. In many ways, the scope of practice issues are essentially distracting from what are some more important foundational discussions. Perhaps the most important point in this discussion is that states that have allowed nurse practitioners to practice without physician collaboration continue to struggle with the same problems as before. There's still primary care shortages, high costs, and fragmented care that persists. The bottom line is that while expanding scope has been proposed as the solution to the primary care needs of this country, Independent nurse practitioner practice has not resolved them. The scope issues impact each state differently because of the huge variability in the education and training of NPs. We can't have an effective solution this way. We must address the need for standardized education, training, and certification of NPs first. This process varies from school to school and state to state. Depending on the state, required NP coursework and training can range from 3,500 to 6,600 hours. The four years is the undergraduate nursing degree. The additional time is usually only one to two years and not three to four to get the master's or doctorate of nursing. The amount and intensity of the clinical training also varies dramatically. At some institutions, parts of the training can primarily occur online rather than face-to-face in the clinical area. Accreditation can come from one of uh, three groups, each with different criteria. So this lack of standardization in NP education and training means that the degree does not tell you what education or training that person has. Comparison, a family physician completes 11 years and 21,000 hours of standardized education and training, including passing exams overseen by one certification body. Medical school rotations give us the necessary experience um, to basically take care of all the range of what you might see in a patient. We get the skills and clinical training um, uh, in that process. The degree clearly and consistently states the breadth and depth of training, regardless of state or school. The wide variability in education and training of NPs is profound and one of the most important issues that must be corrected. So what is the answer? It's team-based care. This is hardly a new concept. A 2011 survey found that nearly 60% of family physicians in the U.S. reported working with NPs, physician assistants, or certified nurse midwives to provide what they call a team-based model of care. In addition, the research has shown that a team-based approach um, to primary care can improve primary care access, ensure that patients get the full range of medical and nursing services, and have a positive impact on controlling healthcare costs. However, in order for America to um, realize the promise of team-based care, we all have to come to a better and shared understanding of what it means for medical providers to work together. As with any team structure, we need to find roles. Each team member is critical, but they're not interchangeable. Let me give you an example. One of my patients called me on a uh, Sunday night with chest pain. He's 62, he has known heart disease, has had a bypass surgery, has reflux and lung disease. We talked and I decided it wasn't uh, an emergency. He did not need to be seen that night. So I saw him first thing in the morning. I did more of a history, I did an exam, I did an EKG in my office, which was reassuring. It still made sense to get a stress test for him. So I set it up for the next day, and I addressed his reflux at that time. His stress test was fine, he was already better. So I provided one-stop shopping, essentially. My education and training prepared me for this. But a less trained provider likely would refer, or perhaps do more tests, or even send the patient to the emergency room. Family physicians are uniquely trained to do this work. No one else is. Much has been made of the research, as commented on. 
In a 2011 detailed analysis of the studies available about NP care, researchers at the University of Missouri found these studies tended to focus on a specific illness and on short-term outcomes, or on care of chronic care conditions after diagnosis by a physician. They failed to examine comprehensive primary care outcomes, which includes treatment of complex problems requiring the broad set of diagnostic skills that I get in my training. Without a doubt, NPs perform well in studies that analyze patient satisfaction, but we cannot conclude these results mean that NP care is interchangeable with physician care. The Newhouse study just mentioned supports this distinction as well. To quote it directly, the systematic review on care provided by NPs indicates their patient outcomes in collaboration with physicians are similar. Further, that same study suggests NPs provide effective care that can augment physician care and expand access to care. It did not say replace. The Newhouse article also said these study results should be interpreted carefully because of significant study limitations. In fact, several of the studies included outcomes of NPs working as part of a team or in collaboration with physicians and others. In short, these studies cannot be used to say that the care of NPs is the same as that of physicians. Moreover, the U.S. is suffering not only from a shortage of primary care physicians, but also of nurses and an even greater shortage. As can be seen in this slide, by 2020, there'll be a primary care physician shortage of 45,000, yet there'll be a nursing shortage of 260,000 by 2025. Moreover, as seen here, NPs are moving away from rural practice and into specialty care, shown there. This raises an interesting comparison. NPs who work with cardiologists, gastroenterologists, and dermatologists are not seen as providing the same level of comprehensive care as those physicians. Primary care is much broader and much more complicated than is a practice limited to one organ system. NPs cannot provide the same level of comprehensive care provided by primary care physicians. In all cases, they are critical members of the team who can provide core services, but they must have collaboration with a more highly trained physician. So where do we go from here? It's time to move beyond policies that further fragment healthcare and move toward building collaborative teams that will increase access and improve quality of care. Healthcare teams that include a variety of health professionals, as we mentioned before, and are developed to meet the needs of individual communities will help us do that. Surveys show that patients overwhelmingly want coordinated team approaches to their healthcare needs with a physician leader. We're also starting, starting to see some exciting data, and this is some uh, bullet points. Essentially, this is showing data from practices in the patient-centered primary care collaborative and the just-released Pioneer ACO models. This shows how team-based care is improving outcomes and lowering costs in a number of different areas. This is the answer that we're wanting to see. This is how we address the triple aim. As with any team endeavor, collaboration is key. Collaboration means the family physician, the nurse practitioner, physician assistant, among others, work together to maximize their individual expertise and skills and to provide the highest quality of care to their patients. We need to recognize that each member of the team has unique but not interchangeable skills. The discussion should not be about turf, but about how we ensure that members of a care team can work together with clearly defined and distinct roles to improve patient outcomes. Thank you. So that's uh, Dr. Blackwalder, and uh, you know, was, you know, probably reading a statement put together by the uh, PR department from AAFP. Very well done, uh, and you know, he always has a very good presentation style. Um, you know, I mean, the bottom line is that I mean, it's the, the, the political infighting uh, between uh, uh, primary care and uh, nurse practitioners are going to continue now. You know, I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm not upset about that. I mean, you know, I, I'm a family doc, and you know, should you know cheer for the home team. <laughs> you know, obviously, I think that that uh, uh, family physicians uh, give better care than independent practice nurse practitioners. I want to make that distinction because you know our practice employs a nurse practitioner and have a very good collaborative relationship agreement um in in line with our state laws and it's great 
That's great. But just, you know, does the general public really care about this? And I don't think they really do. Uh, the, and it was brought up during the uh, during the, the webinar there that it was, you know, that, that patients you know, are confused. They're confused by titles. They're confused by people giving them the care. Um, you know, there, there's all kinds of people that call themselves doctor now. You know, there, there's physicians. Uh, there's, you know, DNPs, there's podiatrists, there's chiropractors, there's a very confusing language um, that is uh, out there. And and people just want care. People just, you know, they they want care uh, and they they want good care. And, uh, you know, who's going to do that, how that's going to be delivered, how it's going to be paid for. Uh, those are the uh, important things, and uh, and the, the 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 only shining light at the end of this webinar yesterday was that the group, and it was close to the very end of the webinar that they did come together in agreement and say, hey, you know, part of this is this broken healthcare system. Uh, it is this broken fee for service healthcare system that we can all agree on. That's the problem. And that definitely needs fixed. How that needs fixed uh, depends on the organization. Uh, but I'm glad that the group at the end was able to come together and say, hey, you know, this broken healthcare system, this fee-for-service system has to go. Uh, and I hope it's with that type of common ground uh, that these groups um, at the political level, at the organizational level, can try to find common ground to try to find common solutions. So I will take uh, one more break, and uh, after the break will be the final segment. I'll talk about a little bit about my uh, my flight here into the Boston uh, area. Interesting thoughts, uh, especially in the background of uh, last month's uh, plane crash at San Francisco International Airport. You're listening to the Mike Savella radio program here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, live from Boston. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Mike Savilla Radio Program. My name is Mike Savilla, and uh, go check out the website, drmikesavilla.com. So the uh, last segment here is uh, just some interesting observations from my flight in here uh, last night. Um, I had a, a full day of work and uh, you know, got on the plane uh, late last night as dusk was starting. And uh, it was interesting uh, seeing people uh, get on the plane. Uh, this is my first flight. Uh, following the uh, San Francisco plane crash, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. And it was interesting me seeing uh, people come on the plane, what they were doing, uh, they were counting rows uh, to where the exit uh, side, exit row was, which I haven't seen before. Uh, and as we were starting out, um, there were a lot of people who were paying attention uh, to the safety demonstration at the beginning of the flight more than I have ever seen uh, before. Uh, and uh, as we were getting closer and closer to landing, uh, I, I could feel it was palpable, uh, the, uh, the anxiety that was in, uh, in the plane. And uh, people, uh, when the landing gear went down, you know, as we were coming in, as landing gear went down, it was loud, and people were very, they were uh, very scared. Like they said, "Oh," <laughs> they were like, "Oh," they were like, "It's just the landing gear, it's normal." And uh, uh, as we were getting closer and closer to landing, um, I, I could feel that people were getting more and more anxious. And when we hit the ground, um, and as we were slowing down, uh, this this big sigh of relief came across the uh, the plane uh and uh and, and i admit you know i was part of that you know I, I was part of that anxiety because you know i i i paid attention uh to the landing uh more this time than i have in a long time uh and uh it, and it was funny too because as we were uh as we were getting ready to to leave the uh, uh to leave the airport the, the exit row was behind me and there was nobody sitting there and I asked the flight attendant, you know, can I move back? And they said, sure, yeah, move back. So, so I, I, uh, 
I moved back to the uh, to the exit row, uh, and uh, I found myself looking at the exit door, studying the graphic, the infographic there on how to open the exit door. Uh, and, and I admit, I probably have never done that before. <laughs> I probably have never done that before. Uh, and, and I found myself uh, looking at it, studying it, uh, visualizing it in my head, um, you know, if, God forbid, anything would ever happen. Um, and, and, that, and that's going to be, you know, and, and people have said, you know, people are going to be, you know, anxious for the first few times or for six months or something like that, and then they're just going to go back to what they were doing before. But but last night, flying into Boston, uh, I could feel the anxiety that was in the in the plane, uh, throughout the flight, and it wasn't you know people going crazy. It wasn't people, you know, you know, lashing out or you know just uh, going crazy. But but you can feel that there was some anxiety um, in the plane, uh, even in this this short, you know, ninety minute flight uh, here into Boston. So so just some observations here at the uh, at the end of the show, and I'm going to be uh, going to be going home in a couple of days, and um, but here in Boston, the next couple of days is going to be hot. And humid, <laughs> mid 90s today, pushing 100 degrees uh, tomorrow. I have the television on, and I'm watching here, and then they're they are all over uh, this uh, Rolling Stone cover on all of the uh, local and national uh, TV uh, news programs uh, going on here in Boston today. So, so that ends my show. Thank you, everybody, uh, for uh, for checking me out uh, here today. I'm hoping the bandwidth holds up and you can actually hear what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, and it was a spontaneous show I kind of put together at the last minute. So hopefully you enjoy the program live or uh, listening uh, later on the download um, on the archived uh, podcast. So if you haven't already, go to primarycareprogress.org and uh, register for tonight's free webinar, 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Thursday, July 18, 2013. Even if you cannot Listen live. Uh, you will be sent, from what I understand, and I think I've got them before, you, you'll be sent uh, an email uh, after the event, and you'll be able to uh, check it out on an archive video uh, to uh, check out the program uh, with me on the webinar talking about social media, my social media history, my opinions with regards to the social media landscape in medicine, uh, what the future is and what my future is. So, uh, uh, and I'll be, uh, <laughs> I'll be uh, tweeting out uh, during the day today, uh, uh, hanging out with uh, my new friends at uh, Primary Care Progress. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining me. And uh, go check out uh, com. And uh, uh, I will see you uh, tonight uh, for the webinar. And uh, I will uh, talk to you all very soon down the line. Uh, it's been fun uh, putting together this uh, short little show here uh, in the Boston area. So uh, we will talk to you all very soon. Have a good day and have a good weekend, everybody. Take care.